Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are gathered here because you have called us to gather here. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in Christ, that you have drawn us away from ourselves to be united with him. And Lord, I pray that as we think about what it means to be united of, with Christ, we would realize that, that it can't be, I'm united with Christ, and he's united with Christ, and she's united with Christ, and they are united with Christ, but we are united with Christ. And so God, I, I pray that as we take a look at your word, and we examine what it means to be a part of, of your family, to be a part of the household of God, that you would help us to appreciate and love and cherish the fact that you have brought us together as a body. God, I pray that we don't come here thinking about that this is somehow my service to you or my worship to you or about my experience of 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 the spirit of being united with you, but we would think in this time, this is about us. This is about what you have done in us, and we, we worship you, we praise you, we honor you, we give you thanks, we, we extol your name because you have saved us and brought us together and united us in Christ. God, I pray that we would love the church. So God, we... We ask uh, with expectation that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts through your word as we study it together. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, it's been reported that 3,800 churches a year close their doors. 3,800 churches a year shut down. We can't even begin to calculate how many churches a year split. How many of them break up. And when we think about these these churches that are closing these door their doors and these churches that are splitting, rarely is it ever about a theological issue. Rarely is it ever about the centrality of the gospel. Rarely is it ever about the good of the church. Occasionally it does happen because of moral failings of leadership. But more often than not, churches divide, churches split, churches close their doors because they love themselves. People love themselves rather than loving one another, rather than seeking for one another's good. And they lose sight of the goal. They lose sight of their their mission. Inevitably, 
Churches close, churches split because we turn inward. We turn on ourselves. And we see this happen over and over again. The church, I mean, Redeemer runs the same risk, right? I mean, we're just starting out. We're very missions minded. We're continuing to hammer this and hammer this and hammer this. It's all about where we're going and what we're doing. And it's about out there, not about right here. It's not about us. It's about what God is doing in Champaign-Urbana that we want to be a part of it. But you know, over time, we run the risk of turning inward ourselves. We, we run that same, you know, we, oh, you know, we've, I've got kids and I need, we need to make sure we've got stuff for our kids. So we're going to set up a children's ministry program to function and make sure we've always got something for our kids. And then we've got to make sure that plate continues to spin every year, VBS, every year, you know, you, you name it. And we do this with so many areas and it becomes about me. It becomes about what I need, what I desire, what I want, and not about what God wants or what God is doing or what is best for the body. And we've seen this, whether it be uh, in terms of moral failing, because a pastor commits adultery, or whether it be because some people are just naturally divisive, or whether that be because we've turned inward and we've lost, we, we've lost our mission, we've lost our purpose, or whether we're, we're discouraged or doubt and we, we begin to turn inward on ourselves. The root of separation, the root of splitting, the root of of churches declining is because we love ourselves rather than loving others. Rather than seeking the glory of God and the good of others and pursuing that together. It's amazing. You notice that that church conflict almost always arises by those who don't serve, by those who aren't committed to the church, that are there as consumers. It's about me. It's about what I want. And the church is eaten alive by these kinds of people, these, these divisive folks, these idlers, these, these immoral or missionless, by those who, who come only to receive but not to give, or they give so that they can control. And we have to be careful, because we too are susceptible to the same things. You know, this is a blaring problem in America. We've seen it. I mean, I grew up in churches like this. I, I mean, we only need to look around and we see it happening. Churches dwindling, churches dying. We're consumed by the American mindset of materialism and individualism. But ironically, it's not a problem that just resides in our day. It happened in Thessalonica 2,000 years ago. They still have the same struggles. I mean, we've been unpacking Thessalonians. We've been going along, and a lot of times we think about how great this church was. Because really it was. I mean, Paul was there for three weeks before persecution had driven him away, and he didn't really have a chance to fully establish this church. And so the fact that it's still surviving, the fact that they're hearing about them growing in faith and love is a great thing. But the reality is there were still immoral people there. There were still people who were divisive. There were still people who decided... I'm, I'm just going to invest myself in, in idleness. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to feed off of everyone else. There were people there who were doubting and discouraged either by the persecution that had, breaking, had broken out there or because they didn't know what would happen to their dead friends. And so they became missionless. The reality is, this plagues us because this is, this is sin 
nature, right? It's about us. It's about what we're doing. It's about what we need. So that sin nature is common, whether that be today or whether that be 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica. But instead of loving ourselves and seeking our own good, we must realize that God has established the order and purpose of the church. And He has placed each one of us, just as we had read, into the body to serve it for a specific function. God has gifted us in a unique way, and we need to act on that. We need to do that which we were created to do. But it starts with a change of heart. First, a change of heart towards your pastors, and then a change of heart towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Be looking at verses 12 through 15. I think it's uh, 988 in those pew Bibles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly because, because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. In verses 12 through 13, Paul is imploring the church of the Thessalonians to submit to and care for their pastors. Those men who have been called, who have been appointed by God to lead and teach the church. I mean, throughout the New Testament, you see the the MO of, of the apostles. They went about proclaiming the gospel, and then they started churches. They, these people that came to know Christ, they gathered them together in a community, and then they would work to find faithful men from among these people and establish them as elders before they moved on. You see this happen time and time again. You see it worked out in the book of Acts. You can read in the pastoral epistles of Paul's desire that Timothy and Titus appoint elders in every town, a plurality of elders in every town as they go, these faithful men who would be entrusted with the gospel and be able to teach others also. That was his intention. That was the apostles' intention. These pastors, these these elders were given the responsibility to govern and instruct this covenanted community of believers. And in this text, Paul asked the church, the brothers and sisters in Christ, to lovingly Follow their leadership. You know, here at Redeemer, we hold to what is called a congregational eldership. Anybody know what that means? I think I know what that means. Oh, yeah? You were going to, let me guess, you were going to answer old men with really long white beards that make ships for congregations? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What does it mean, Jim? Um, it means that our church is led by elders, and those elders are affirmed by the congregation. Mm-hmm. It's good. You shortened my sermon quite a bit. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sweet. <laughs> no, this is all we need. Yes. Get out of here. I'm hungry. Um, <laughs> 
We believe that Scripture does. You know, it teaches that the church is led by elders or by pastors. These can be both paid or unpaid. They can have beards and or gray hair, but it's not a requirement. Um, you know, uh, but the elder or pastor is a man, according to 1 Timothy 2.15, that who has been gifted and called by God to lead and teach the church. They are to exercise authority over the church. If you read 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you, you get a picture of what qualifies these men for that position. What their character must look like. What their competencies must be. And it's, they are to set an example in faith. And it gives a lot of lists, lists a lot of things. We won't look at it now. But it also says that they are competent to teach and to lead the church. So any, anyone desiring to serve in that way, desiring that task, they must set an example in godly conduct and character and be gifted to lead, to be gifted to teach. And as Jim said, with regards to congregational, this, this elder is one who has been confirmed, or affirmed, as he said, by the church. The church has examined this person and says, yeah, this, this man is of, is of upstanding character. This man clearly has the ability to teach, the, the, the gifting of leadership, and so they establish him. Now, there are other things that come into congregationalism, um, but that's the main one that we're going to talk about today. The congregation affirms that this man uh, is able to guide, to teach, to lead, to protect, to equip, and to care for the church. And uh, so, so the government of the church, I just have to make explicit, is not based upon democratic vote. Amen. Okay? It's not. It's based upon these men who are competent to lead the church. This is a pattern of headship that God has designed. And, I, and here's the thing that most people don't think of. It actually reflects the roles of submission within the Trinity. Do you realize that? The Father is the chief authority. The Son glorifies the Father. And the Holy Spirit glorifies both the Father and the Son. And what we see in the church and what we see in our homes is to be a reflection, to be a mirror of that. So these men have, this is the, the biblical pattern for government of the church. But if you look back at our text in verse 12, we're given descriptions of these pastors, of these elders. The first thing we see is that they are to labor hard among you. The idea that is conveyed here is of a striving or a struggling of this wearisome toil. Now this doesn't mean that they have to exert themselves physically in a, in a very physically demanding way, like go dig your ditches or shovel your manure or, I don't know, build your house or... or <laughs> I've got a funny look over here. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but not, there, it, it doesn't mean that the task of the elder is to serve physically in an exhausting way, but it reflects the manner in which they serve, the manner in which they shepherd or pastor this flock. They are to work hard. They are to be diligent at it. They are to invest themselves deeply in what they're doing. You know, many of us have this wrong idea that the pastors don't do anything. You know, like, what do you guys do? I mean, you, you drink a lot of coffee, you talk with people, you read some stuff, you get up here and you jabber forever, and all I want to do is go get some food. You know, and so, I mean, but the church tends, tends to exist like that, right? You know, 
And But it's not. It's not at all the case. I mean, it, it, this is hard work. And one of the ways it's hard work is because we have to deal with people with that same type of mentality, you know? You have to try to lead people often where they don't want to go. One of the most daunting things about it, I mean, it's just, it's emotionally and physically exhausting. You can't shut it off. I mean, you're always a pastor. It's like being a dad. You're always a dad. It's not a nine-to-five kind of a thing. You're always on call, always supposed to be ready to have that major answer. And, and you pour yourself out in people that sometimes couldn't give a rip. And you continue to expend and expend and expend. And it's just, it's hard. And what's even worse about it is that you, you can't affect change. I can't make any of you change, right? In all my leadership, I mean, all I can do is expound the word. You know, say, this is the word of God. This is what it says to you. This is God's desire for your life. And I can implore you to live according to your profession of faith. I'm, I can work hard to help you to see who you are in Christ and then to be who you are in Christ. But all I can do is say these things. I, my words can't change anything. And so I stand up here week after week after week. We meet in community groups week after week after week. And I can, I can rattle off the word all day long. But if the Spirit is not in it, if the Spirit's not working on your hearts, it means nothing. And that's a hard thing to do for a guy like me who likes to control things. So this is exhausting work. It's hard work. It's also important to note what Paul says here in verse 12, that those who labor among you. He doesn't say the one who labors among you. He says those. He's talking about multiple people, a plurality. This passage is one of many in the New Testament that supports this idea of a plurality of elders. That the church is to be governed not by one, but by a few faithful men who, who share the load. Who share preaching and teaching the responsibility of leading and governing and guiding the church. Here at Redeemer, I mean, we've taken this to heart. I mean, right now, we only have an eldership of two. But we're working hard to remedy that. And so as soon as a young man uh, can get us that 125 question questionnaire filled out, we can move on to the next step. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but I can tell you, uh, man, I am so thankful, so thankful for the men who work alongside me. I know that I could not do this. I could not start this church. I could not lead this church without them without their diligent effort i just praise god for them it's amazing uh there's there's so much i mean it's just a reflection of the church right i mean the joy that comes in in one another helping each other to do what god has appointed and called you to do it's amazing but verse 12 says also that they are over you Right? Meaning that they rule over you. They go before you as your head. They stand before you as the leader, as the responsible representative. It's the same word that's used in the New Testament. Describe the father as being the head, the leader of the home. It's the same word. 
Paul has already characterized himself as the father and mother to this Thessalonian church. He's one who's led, he's one who is exhorted, who is sacrificed for, who's cared for, who's set an example for them in the faith. Um, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, this word is used of elders within the church, where Paul says, let the elders who rule well, there's the word, can be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So this these passages are clear that elders have this responsibility, not the congregation, to rule and to govern the church. But this is not to be a heavy-handed rulership, right? This is not sort of a, a uh, what's a multiple dictatorship? I don't know. Dictatorship by a, few, by a body versus, um, yeah, oligarchy, something like that. Um, it's not to be like that. Our authority is a derived authority, Right? We are under shepherds meant to serve the chief shepherd. The authority that we receive is the authority that comes from God. He said that they rule over you in the Lord. They stand as representatives, as ambassadors for the Lord. And His authority is clearly articulated in the Word. Therefore, we rule by rightly dividing Scripture and applying it faithfully to the life and doctrine of the church. Our chief responsibility in ruling is to the word and prayer so that we might know, obey, and teach the will of God. We also see in verse 12 that another role of pastors is to admonish. And this means to warn or to teach. And again, they do this through the word. The role of pastors is to help you realize who you are in Christ and then be who you are, to live consistently with the profession of faith that you have made. Now, honestly, we like this idea of, of pastors laboring hard for us, right? You're like, hey, you need to get to work. You need to serve me. I, I have needs. I have desires. You need to come and bring it on. But the reality is we buck against the other two. We don't like the idea of someone ruling over us. We don't like the idea of someone admonishing us. <laughs> You're going to tell me to listen to, to that guy? I mean, you guys have seen Jim. I mean, <laughs> that's your leader right there. <laughs> if you think he's bad, wait till you get to know me. I mean, come on. You know, we're supposed to follow these guys? We're supposed to listen to them? I don't want to do what they're telling me. And that's the thing about admonishment. It's usually not something you're eager to hear about, right? I mean, they're warning you. They're instructing you because you're not on the right path. That means they're helping you to get on it. And so this is not an easy thing for us to do. We don't want to change how we're living or what we're doing. We don't like to be called to the mat. And so we'll buck against this. Maybe we'll leave. Maybe we'll just get angry. Maybe we'll stir up division within the church. Or maybe we'll just passively ignore it. But we won't heed it. We won't follow it. But you need to realize that when you do, you are not rejecting man, but God. You know, if Jim is being faithful to his position, if he is holding you accountable to the Word of God, and he's exhorting you to... And, and helping you to develop a plan of change so that you might redirect your life, and you ignore it, You're not just rejecting Jim, you're rejecting God. I mean, it's that serious. 
if we're being faithful to what we're doing, you're not just disregarding imprudent advice, right? It's not just as though, hey, this is, these are just some good ideas from Jim. Take it or leave it. This is serious stuff. You're rejecting God. You're rebelling against God because God is the one who has established this authority and their derived authority is being faithful to the Word of God. Now, you need to test what they say against Scripture, for sure. I mean, this is not a blind, you know, obedience. But if you see that what he's saying is consistent with the truth of Scripture... You're obligated to follow, not because it's Jim that said it, but because it's God. And this man is, he is keeping watch over your soul. So, what's the implications of this? Obey me now, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's weird to stand up here and preach the sermon, you know, because it's like, you know, you're just like, this is not self-fulfilling in any way, you know? It's like, <laughs> but... But the reality is, we labor hard. I mean, and we do. I hope you guys know that we take this position very seriously. And we work hard. I mean, this is why, as we're evaluating another man, we have a 125-question questionnaire about all manner of theology and practice that he's got to fill out. It's gonna, he's going to get it done. It's going to be like a book, you know? But that's, that's the kind of thing that, that we're trying to hold them to. And we've, we've had to come up with the same conclusions there. And we've, I mean, we're just realizing, wow, we, we also need to make sure that we fill out this questionnaire ourselves to make sure that we, when we articulate, we're clearly articulating our positions and people can see those. So this is a heavy matter. We don't take it lightly. And I'm thankful. I'm really thankful that we haven't had any major issues yet. But Lord knows we're not exempt from it. And the only way that we're going to be able to stand and, and persevere through those major issues is if we, the elders, are being faithful to the Word of God and articulating that. And you guys are seeing that and being willing to follow, right? It's not just about us doing our thing. It's about all of us doing our thing. But Paul says that we don't just obey our pastors. We need to do it with a godly attitude, Right? First, Paul says in verse 12 that you need to respect them. You know, it's like, ah, respect. I can hear the old man just kind of chiming in right now. Ah, respect. You know, I'm not going to say where I got that from. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, you have to respect them. You have to, you have to honor them. Each, each of us must consider whether or not our attitudes, our words, or our actions show deference for those who are laboring hard among us. Second, Paul says that we are to esteem them highly. And not just highly, we are to esteem them highly in love. We are to consider them with highest regard. We are to, to honor them. We are to have affections for them. We are to, in, in, don't hear this the wrong way, in one sense worship them, right? Not, not like worship man, right? But, but love is a form of worship, you know? And so I say that kind of extreme to kind of get people's heads perked up, really, is all I'm doing. But um, <laughs> I don't know if that's working or not. But, but we, are to, we are to have a deep, abiding esteem and affection for them. And we don't worship man. Don't hear that. But, but we love them, right? Care for them. We're willing to, to follow them and hold them in high regard. So, um, so yeah, we're called to respect and esteem them highly in love. Um, 
because they serve us as spiritual authorities. And we can't just do this begrudgingly. We can't just follow them. We're to honor them. We're to appreciate them. We're to come around them and and to care for them and, and to show deep affection for them. And I think that if you take stock in your life, you'll see that the, the fruits of their labors. I mean, think, Phil, think about how, how much Jim has poured into you over the years and what a difference that's made. You know, I mean, same thing with you, Keith, Joe. I mean, they've worked hard. They've been faithful to, he's been faithful to the word of God. And one of the things that you can do, one of the greatest blessings that you can give your elders, you can give your pastors, is to take stock of your life and then go tell them about what a difference it's made. Seriously. There's nothing I would rather hear. There's nothing I would rather see than, than evidences of God's grace in your life as a result of me trying to be faithful to God's word. I'd want nothing else. Nothing fuels a pastor more than to hear that, than to know that. I mean, that, that gets us charged up. That keeps us going. And so, you know, bust Jim later. It'd be good. <clears throat> but there's some practical reasons also why we should do this. Uh, there's a, there's a, a deep intended result here. Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. The quickest and easiest way to resolve conflict in the church is to obey the guys that are obeying the word. You realize that? And if, you're le- if your elders are being faithful to the word of God and are humbly and reverently expounding that to you, if you want to see conflict resolved in the church, the best way to do that is to follow them. Again, this is not a blind compliance, but it's an informed, grateful obedience. Hebrews 13:17 says it like this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It would be of no advantage of you. It is to your advantage to be peacekeepers by willingly submitting to the leadership of your church so that they can fulfill their responsibility to lead and to guide and to govern the church, to to watch over your souls with joy. This is of advantage to you. You can bring peace to their weary soul as they work hard to lead and instruct you according to God's word, according to God's design, according to God's plan of authority for the church. But we each have to decide. We can either be a blessing or we can be a burden. So proper conduct in the household of God requires a change of heart towards your pastors. But second towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's look again at verses 14 and 15. It says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. The first thing we need to examine in these verses is Paul's audience. Who is it he's talking to? This is not a rhetorical question. The church. 
He's talking to the brothers, right? And that includes brothers and sisters, i.e. the entire church. He's saying this to every one of them. He's telling them to do the work of ministry. Ministry is the work of the church, not just the pastors. That seemingly popular phrase today in the church, that, that rebuttal that, well, that's what we pay him for, does not fly with the biblical view of the church. Just because you pay a pastor does not mean that you are exempt from serving. The church is an every man ministry. I mean, we've already looked at Ephesians chapter 4 earlier. I just want to reread verses 11 through 13. And God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the role of these apostles, of these evangelists, these prophets, these pastors and teachers is to equip the saints. That's every believer, everybody who's received the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to do the work of ministry. And and so who does the ministry? The entire church does the ministry. And what is their goal? That every believer reach the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That they reach mature manhood to the fullness of Christ. Every believer. Not just some. Every believer. Every member of the church has a responsibility to others to to help them to reach maturity in Christ. You know, if you... uh, if you talk to Josh about one of his first impressions of, of the church, he'll tell you of, of the first conversation that we had when we talked about membership. And, and I looked at Josh intently. I looked him square in the eyes. I said, and Josh, at Redeemer, there are no bench warmers. There are no bench warmers. And that's not a Redeemer requirement. That's a biblical mandate. Amen. We're all called to serve. We're all called to get in the game, to participate, to play our part in the work of ministry. So who, who here has played played baseball? Yeah, most of us most of us have played baseball. Who here has spent some time on the bench? Everybody who's played baseball has spent time on the bench. Keith has really spent some time on the bench. Apparently, you, you don't get to play the baseball games. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me something. What's the demeanor like in the dugout? I mean, baseball is a pretty long game, three four hour game. What's the demeanor like for the, especially for those people that are seemingly like always sitting on the bench? What's the demeanor like for the, for the, the flunky bench? You know, the one that's over there by the bullpen. You know, like, isn't it ironic how they keep all the, all the pitchers away from the rest of the team? I always think that's funny. You know, right? It's, it's usually not a positive one, right? It's, I mean, players that sit on the bench, what do they do? They, they play pranks on one another. It's, it's a joke. You're like, they're distracted. They're always trying to do crazy stuff, you know, and, and they're just an annoyance to the coach. They're a distraction to the players on the team, you know. Like, I, I, I played first base a little bit, but I got distracted by it because, you know, you're there in the dugout. So they had to move me over to second base because I couldn't handle it. Um, but, uh, I mean, this is a big deal. If you do a Google search for baseball pranks, you'll get five million hits. Five million. I mean, people write books 
and they make movies that are all about baseball pranks. That's it. I mean, it's a huge deal. <laughs> and so this, this, this demeanor is one of, uh, it's just nothing but trouble, right? It's like I said, it just annoys the coaches, it distracts the players, like it's kind of fun or whatever. But those people that are sitting on the bench aren't really in the game, are they? I mean, there are moments where the game's really intense and they're kind of excited, but most of the time they're not in it. And the church can reflect that same kind of thing. You know, but, but the difference between the church and the baseball field is that you can only have nine players on the baseball field at any one time. But God has so designed the church that everybody has a position and everybody's called to play it. But so often, we choose to go and sit in the bench. We choose to go and, and play pranks on one another, cause hot feet, you know, to, to put Bengay on guys' athletic supporters and, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> Did you experience that? No? That's awesome. But that's the kind of stuff. You know, we're... we're <laughs> lost them. Knew shouldn't have said that. Um, <laughs> I say some things sometimes that... Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm just going to go there. Uh, but back to, the, back to focus. Back to the church. In the church, there are no bench warmers, right? There are no bench warmers. We're all called to play a position. We're all called to actively use our gifts to serve the church in a variety of ways. And then in verse 14, our ministry to one another, we see, looks different depending upon the context, right? We have to, to be wise. We have to know the word and be able to rightly apply it to the given situation. And, and he lists three different ways uh, of how we need to rightly discern um, the situation and know how to apply the word. First, we are to admonish the idle, right? I mean, we looked back in chapter 4, verse, verse, verse 12, that there were some in the church who were feeding off of the others. They, they quit their jobs and they were kind of waiting for Christ to come back, right? And they were just... They were just kind of sitting around, feeding off of the rich. And, and they, were they were just stirring up strife with believers and unbelievers. They were busybodies. They were just mooching. It was, they, they were annoying. Um, they were disorderly and undisciplined. And they acted as parasites, sucking the life out of the church and giving nothing in return. And to them, our ministry is one of admonishment, to warn and to instruct them. This is the same word used of one of the tasks of the elders, to admonish the idol, right? <clears throat> and, to we, and we must do that with the word of God, right? So we have the responsibility to one another that if we do see an, someone who is being idle, who is, who is disorderly or undisciplined, we're to try to help that person back to orderliness and back to self-discipline because that's glorious to God, that's honoring to Him. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody takes a whack at the piñata, right? It, it doesn't mean that, that, okay, if we see, you know, Brett, you know, not really doing so hot, so everybody's going to go around and hit him with the Word of God. But that's not what it's about. It's about people that have particular relationships with Brett that are intentional about coming alongside Brett and admonishing him and warning him and helping him to plan for change, right? Um, but we don't. Just go back to the pastor. And that's important to point out. So often is the case, everything funnels back to the few. Rather than realizing, you know what? Brett's, I have a relationship with Brett. We, we serve on the worship team together. We, we're in a community group together. 
I ought to go and, and just talk to Brett about some of these things I'm seeing. I'm going to do it humbly. I'm going to take the log out of my own eye before I try to take the speck out of his. But I'm going to go and do that because I love him and I care about him. Um, second, we are to encourage the faint-hearted. And this is probably referring to those who were discouraged by the persecutions that they were facing or um, those who were concerned about the state of their undead loved ones, according to the context, right? But they were beginning to doubt, to question. And so their mind was just consumed by it. They were beginning to turn inward and losing focus on the vision, the mission that they were called to do. And so he says that we are to come alongside them. If we see a brother or sister that's discouraged or doubting, again, we don't run over to Jim and say, hey, I noticed that Sarah really, seems to be struggling with stuff. you think you can talk to her? I'm probably gonna, If you say that to me, I'm probably going to say, well, you know, you know Sarah pretty well. Have you tried to go and talk with her? And I'm going to try to turn it right back around. And it's not because I don't want the responsibility, but because I'll go and I'll talk to Sarah too. But I want to see us coming alongside one another. To build one another up. And you do that by applying the truth of the gospel in love to their lives. To give them hope. Right? It all comes back to the gospel. Third, Paul says that we are to help the weak. Now there's a variety of interpretations on who the weak are. Um, The weak could be the physically weak. Those who are sick or disabled. The weak could be Uh, people who struggle with legalism in certain issues, right? We've seen this in Romans. We've seen this in 1 Corinthians where there were people that were really hung up on eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And Paul calls them weak brothers. Their, Their knowledge of how to apply the gospel to that situation wasn't fully there. And so they just had a weak understanding. Um, it could be those who have little or no social status or power. Like uh, the poor, the needy, the orphan, the widow. Uh, it could be those who are struggling with self-control, either in temperament or maybe they're struggling with addictions. But they are desiring to follow Christ. Okay. Scripture has dealt with all of these, so it doesn't really matter how we if we try to pinpoint one over the other. Scripture deals with them all, and and all of these could be classified as weak. And if they are seeking to know Christ, to love Christ, to follow Christ, then we have the obligation to help them. This means to pick them up, to cling to them, to hold to them, to continue to speak the truth of the gospel, to, to bear their burdens, to share in those sufferings. If they're, if they're physically weak, then we go and we help them to meet their needs. If they're legalistic, then we go and we try to teach and instruct and help them to see how the gospel applies to these situations. If, if they have little or no social status or power, then, then we help them financially. We, we do what we can to be an advocate for them. And if they're struggling with self-control, again, we teach, we exhort, but we continue to walk with them in their addictions to help them overcome that. Now, it doesn't mean that there's, there's not a place for discerning. I mean, we have to really discern whether or not they're truly wanting to know Christ, wanting to follow Christ. But if, they're, if they are our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we have an obligation to walk with them in it, to lift them up. And fourth, we are to be patient with them all. 
regardless of their situation or burden, we are to be patient with them as they seek to live lives that are consistent with their profession of faith. We are to continually help them to pursue repentance and faith, to return to the gospel. Because there's hope in the gospel, we extend hope. We never give up on them. We continue to extend hope because there is such hope in the gospel. We continue to be patient with them because God has been so patient with us that He sacrificed His own Son to buy us. And so we extend that same patience to one another. And again, this doesn't mean that there's never a reason to remove that person from fellowship. Right? But if they are truly committed to Christ, if they're truly trying to follow after Christ but struggling, then we are to love them. We are to come around them. We are to not close our hearts towards them, even if we have to remove them from fellowship. That's really being patient. So rather than loving ourselves, we are to commit to act for the glory of God and for the good of others, regardless of their response, their reception, or their reciprocity. That is what love is. Love is not an emotion. Love is a commitment to act for the glory of God and the good of others, regardless of what they do. And loving requires patience. And Paul then says in verse 15, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. When, we, when our brother sins against us, we don't respond in sin or retribution, but we are to do good to one another. Rather than seeking our own good at the expense of others, we are to seek the good of others at the expense of ourselves. I'm going to say that again. Rather than seeking our own good at the expense of others, we are to seek the good of others at the expense of ourselves. And this applies not just to those in the church, but to everyone. We know that Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We know in Romans that we are not to be overcome by evil, meaning that our hearts are bent on committing evil towards those who have been evil towards us. But we are to overcome evil with good. It's the responsibility of every believer to seek to love one another more than they love themselves. To seek one another's good more than their own. To seek the interests of others before their own. To be committed to one another. Because we have made a commitment to Christ. Do you realize that when we make a commitment to Christ, we, by nature, because we are all united in Christ, have made a commitment to one another. You can't love Christ and not His body. You can't love Christ and not love His church. You can't follow Christ and not submit to His established authority. To serve Christ is to serve His church. To seek His will means that you die to your own will even in the church. And of course we say all this because the last thing we want is to see this church ripped apart from the inside. And it happens. It happens subtly, it happens slowly, and all of a sudden, just like a flame ignites a highly combustible material, the next thing you know this whole thing is it's gone. It's exploded. 
So as we seek to know and love Christ, let us seek to know and love one another. God has ordained it. Christ has accomplished it. The Holy Spirit has empowered it. We've just read that Paul, the apostle, has urged it. And we, your elders, ask it. Let us know and love one another. <clears throat> Here at Redeemer, we, we work hard to make this, this uh, passage a reality. All right? We want you to be, we want us to be a community of faith that truly lives this out. I mean, our vision, our mission, our values, our strategy all direct our attention to this, to living as a redemptive community of gospel-centered people. I'm missing my last notes. <laughs> that was awesome. Um, and one of the ways we do that here in the church is to, <clears throat> is to structure our ministry to actually make this happen, to make this a reality. Okay? It, so coming here on Sunday mornings to join us in our worship gathering is it's not even the major part of what we do. It's not even the major function of the church. Really, this is, this is a point where we come together and we celebrate all that God has done and we help to reflect uh, our minds, we, we, to, to catch our minds uh, on the truth of God's word so that when we go out from here, we can act as missionaries. But the reality is the, the main ministry happens in homes. It happens during the week. It happens as we go out of here. And so you're not going to see a lot of programs here. You won't. We're not, we're not going to do that. Uh, we, we function, we thrive in community groups and life transformation groups. These are smaller groups where, that allow us to actually put these things into practice, to grow into maturity with one another, to seek to know one another, to serve one another. And then we give you an opportunity to practice these things as you minister to one another. Because these things happen best in community. They have to happen in community. And we think that community groups and life transformation groups are the best way. So, in case you don't know, community groups are basically in-home Bible studies. We meet weekly. We gather together. We, uh, we dig into the Word. We share lives together. We, we, we typically eat together. We have fellowship together. We pray for one another. Um, it's just a deep, intimate time where... You, you realize you can't get to know everybody, even though we're small. You can't get to know everybody very deeply. But in a smaller group like that, you can. And so we really push those things so that you guys can live life with one another. So you can actually help to do this one another, to exhort one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, whatever. Help one another, however that works. That happens in community group. Life transformation groups are smaller. They're, they're two to four people of the same sex that meet together for intense discipleship and accountability. And this is where we really kind of get into one another's junk. And uh, this looks different depending upon the context. Like if you go to Caleb and Brett when they gather together because they're on the worship team, their focus has a little bit, uh, is a little distinct, but they still are loving one another, serving one another, getting to know one another and, and praying for one another and, and, and confessing sin and, and seeking accountability. 
If you go to, to Jim's, when Jim and Joe and, and Phil and Keith meet together, that's going to look a little bit different. When you go and you see uh, Phyllis meeting up with Claudia, that's going to look a little bit different. You, you see my group, where I'm with, with Quinn and Josh, that, again, is going to look a little different because we try to focus those on the exact needs of that group. But again, the major focus is discipleship and accountability. And it's an opportunity to get to know one another. And so when these things, when you're feeling discouraged, when you're struggling because you're weak, you're, you're having issues of self-control, when, when you're just being idle and you need to be admonished, that's, those are the first guys to do it, guys and gals to do it. The first ones. And we keep tabs on those. You know, we follow up with those. We, we seek to, to be pas- pastors where necessary because we realize that people are gifted and equipped in different ways. Sure. And, and we're... So it doesn't mean that we're like free from all responsibility, but this is the way the church is meant to operate. This is the way the church is intended to act, and, and this is the way we want to structure things. This is what we want to be about. And so, uh, and another thing we do too, before I kind of move on, the children's ministry. If you're a member here, you serve in a rotation on children's ministry. It's only like once every six weeks, but it's a big deal because you get to know the kids, right? As the church grows, one of the best ways that you can get to know families is to serve the kids, you know? And you automatically have something to talk about, you know? I, I, can, I can come up to Phil and I can say, man, Caleb, hey, he did this funny thing, you know, today. And, and, just, and just get this conversation going and you begin to share life. And you take more of a concern for that family unit rather than maybe the one individual out of that family that you know. If you're single, it's good for you to spend time with kids, right? To learn all their pleasantries and not so pleasantries. And, and to be able to, to instruct them, to help, to see, okay, this is how I can articulate the gospel to a two-year-old. This is how I can articulate the gospel to a six-year-old. And you learn what it means to lead in a small level kids that's going to help you when you are the, the head of your family. You're the head of your household. This is a good and a gracious thing. And it doesn't overwhelm just a few people who do it day after day after day after day after day. So it's a great way. We do that even in our community groups. Uh, we, we have community servants that, that bring the snack that day and then they serve the kids. And it's just a great way to serve that, that Bible study. And so we commend that. So, oops. Um, so if you're not a member, you know, we, we'd encourage you in that direction. We'd encourage you to become a member of, of Redeemer. If you're not in a community group or a life transformation group, again, we would commend that to you. We'd encourage you in that direction. But the reality is if you're here as a consumer, you need to know that you're not ultimately helping yourself or anyone else. If you're coming here just to be fed, you'll be fed all right. But you're going to feed off of the detriment of all. We're not designed to live this way. God did not design the church this way so that we could live as consumers here to eat and eat and eat and never give. But if you change your mindset, if you change your attitude, your heart towards your pastors, towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, it would be amazing at the difference. If you come with this, this attitude of, you know what, I have been blessed and so I am going to be a blessing, you'll find that you're fed far more than you could ever possibly imagine. So I don't know where you are today. But I'm encouraging all of us to make a commitment together, because that's what a church does, to change our hearts. 
Let's seek not to be served, but to serve. Let's seek to conduct ourselves properly in the household of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this reminder of what it means to love one another. God, I confess that even I am so prone to turn inward and think about myself and to seek the church as a means of of satisfying myself. God, I pray that we would realize that our soul satisfaction comes in knowing and loving Jesus Christ. And that as we do that, it overflows naturally in seeking to know and love others. God, I pray that you would change our hearts, that we would love our pastors, we would love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we would seek their good and your glory above our own. God, I pray that we would be an exemplary church, a church that if somebody comes in from the outside and they see us, that the love that we have for one another is evident and that they might desire it. God, we don't ask this for ourselves. We ask this because you are honored in it. You are made known when your church acts as a unified body in Christ. So God, I pray that for Redeemer, that we would be united in Christ as we love and serve one another. God, we thank you for the cross. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.